Welcome. I am so glad that you chose to come and to meet with God's people, anticipating that God would somehow come and change you from the inside out. That's a miracle that God does every time we meet with Him. We meet, though, every Sunday here at 10 o'clock in order to pray and sing and worship and, in particular, open up God's Word. We're teaching families to know and obey and enjoy Christ so we can be salt and light. For those who have been with us, we have been spending time in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open your Bibles to John. It's the fourth Gospel. Or open up your flat screens and uh, punch in John chapter 5. We've been spending time in the Gospel of John and spending time with Jesus. One of the things that's hard to understand, at least in our culture a, a little bit, is that John flat out loved Jesus. We know John was a fisherman. We know John was a man's man. And sometimes when men talk about loving God with all of their hearts, we put them in a certain category. But that's who John was. He wrote this gospel near the end of his life. And I think he just wanted to make sure that all of us had an accurate picture of who Jesus was. He had an agenda. Every letter that he wrote, every word that he penned out, he wanted to make sure that we would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. We've been singing praises to this Messiah. This unbelievable king that so many of you have a relationship with. I got to say something, though. Last week, I had a challenge for all of you parents to encourage your kids to memorize John 20, 31. And I, and I shared with you, I said, if you do, just put this on a clip, a video off your phone, send it to me because I would love to play it at this time. All of your cute little kids or big kids or graduates or maybe you've got to even talk to your wife at this time because I'm getting desperate. All right? And you put it on there and I just want to encourage each one of you to get to know this Jesus. And one of the things sometimes we forget, or at least we put our kids in a category, as long as they go to Awana, they can learn verses, which is good. But I think, again, all of us have an opportunity to open up God's Word and to see what God's Word has to say and to memorize it. So that challenge is still there, and unless somebody does it, I'm just going to keep going. So Each week, though, we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus. Christ's signs, as we've noticed in the book of John, or his miracles, reveal his, his glory. 
There are seven of them in John, and we're going to be looking at the third one today. We've noticed that people matter to Jesus. He seeks out the lost, the wandering, and offers them hope. You know, in our book so far, we've found a lost religious person who is basically dead. And Jesus offered this Nicodemus life. We found a lost neighbor who was so thirsty. And Jesus offered the Samaritan woman water that will last forever, that will quench her thirst. We found that the disciples at times are aimless. And he's offered the disciples an assignment. He gave them some purpose. And last week, we saw a desperate dad with a sick son. And Jesus offered that man and his son healing. What was so cool about last week, if you recall, is that not only was this man changed and his son healed, but as a result of God moving in this family, the whole family, the whole household, all of the servants, everybody around came to faith. What a story. Well, today we hang out with Jesus again. And he's going to do a miracle that I think will surprise you. Maybe you've read it before, but if we understand the context, I think you're going to go, whoa, seems a little odd. Now, I'm going to ask Lacey Gardner to stand and read our scripture for us. It's John 15, 1 through 15. But in some of your Bibles, and I just want to say this ahead of time, you're not going to see verses 3 and 4, and we're not going to read them. Mostly because even there's some notes in your Bible there that the most accurate of all the manuscripts don't have verses 3 and 4. So we're going to glaze over those verses and read from the scripture that we know is part of God's word. Lacey, can you read for us? Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of six peop sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool where the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're opening your word. We want to learn from you. We ask that your spirit would be so active. We ask, dear Father, that your words would penetrate us. It would encourage us. It would convict us. Lord, we know 
that there are so many things that we don't understand. But today we're asking you to open our eyes to this text. I also want to pray for some other churches in the area, Father. I know that they are teaching your word, and I know they are part of the kingdom movement. And I know, God, that uh, it's important that we pray for other brothers and sisters. I think of Redemption Church in Belvedere. And I know, God, that this was a church plant. And I know that they are growing and, and they are seeing some amazing things. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would strengthen Pastor Adam, encourage him even this day. I also pray, Father, for Chana Lakes Community Church. And Father, it's a church just a little bit north of us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give their leadership strength and that you would strengthen their people and allow them to be salt and light in their community. I also pray for the Chapel McHenry. Father, I know, again, there's been some transition there, and they have a new campus pastor, and I, I pray, dear God, that they would be salt and light and that you would encourage them and that they would continue to make an impact in that area. Lord, we look forward to all the things you're going to do here. I'm so grateful for our church and our family, and we pray, Lord, that, that you would ignite us, that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me set this stage for you, if I could. Jerusalem at this time was filled with multitudes observing a holy day. The scriptures don't even tell us which of the holy days is being celebrated. But inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the Pool of Bethsaida. Now, I've got some pictures for you up on the screen. And, and to be quite honest, um, the ruins don't really help us understand a whole lot. Sharon and I had the privilege of going to Israel last year, and one of the highlights, honestly, was, was just kind of going wherever Jesus went. And picture all these different things that Jesus had done with his disciples. And just trying to understand a little bit of the privilege that these guys had. Well, Jesus was in Jerusalem at this time. And the scriptures tell us that he went to this pool. Now the pool seemed to have some additional properties. Some scholars think that there might be some red minerals in it or some salt in there so maybe it was like a jacuzzi or maybe it was uh, like the hot springs and and we're not exactly sure of all the things but but we do know this that this pool was probably fed by an underground spring and every once in a while there would be some bubbling i don't know if the spring hiccuped i don't know what was going on i don't even know how long it lasted but people would be stationed around this pool, and they'd be all waiting for this bubbling action. Well, this pool had a reputation, which the locals kept it strong. The idea was this. If somebody could get into that pool immediately after the bubbling happened, they would be healed. Now, just like any other local folklore, all right, sometimes the stories begin to grow in time. 
I am pretty sure that those who were older and those who were feeble or those who had aching bones and muscles, I, I bet the pool did them well. I do. And I bet there were even people that jumped in the pool that thought, whoa, I am healed, I'm good. And so that neighborhood lore began to grow. As a result, there were scores of hurting people. They laid all around the pool, and the scriptures tell us, even the locals, they built canopies. There are at least five of them. So that it would at least shelter them a little bit from the hot sun, and they would be surrounding these pools, or actually two of them, just waiting for this bubbling action. We find out that only the desperate were perched around this pool. Folks wanted to be close. They wanted to be the first ones to fall in. This pool provided hope. This pool, in fact, was the hope for some who no doubt went to doctor after doctor after doctor. Remember, again, they didn't have hospitals. There were no emergency rooms. There were no great surgeons. There were no MRIs or x-rays or any of those things. The drugs that they had again, pale compared to what we have today. And so sickness was a curse. I would look at this pool as perhaps the Mayo Clinic of that time. It was almost the last bit of hope that a sick person or an ill person would have. You all know that uh, Mayo has an unbelievable reputation. And I know some of you are in the medical fields and some of the hospitals and doctors that you work with are probably just as good. But the bottom line is if you hear the word Mayo, it's almost like, okay, they're desperate. They have exhausted just about every other way to get better. And so they go to this place hoping that these surgeons or these doctors or these medicines will be given in order for them to get better. That was this pool. Now what I'd like to do is make some observations about the man, the Pharisees, and finally Jesus. Let's start with the man. We don't really know a whole lot about him, but as we read through the story, we do know this, that he's somewhat religious. He respected the Pharisees. He somewhat understood the Jewish laws at that time. But we also know he was lame or he was paralyzed. We don't know exactly how sick he was, but we knew he was without strength and without hope and that he laid there for 38 years, hoping to get into the pool. Now, I don't know how quickly each one of you get discouraged, but I'm pretty sure my limit is way below 38 years. All right? I mean, honestly, if things don't happen in an hour, you know, you go, what, what's the problem, man? I mean, let's get with it. Let's see some movement here. I wasn't always the easiest guy to live with. Imagine that. But the truth is this guy had no other hope. 
He didn't. He was sick. And so however he got there, and loved ones or perhaps at least got him there, every single day, he would end up at the pool, hoping, hoping for a miracle. Remember, to be physically challenged in this culture was a curse. Even wheelchairs, crutches were primitive, roads weren't paved. Just even think of hygiene. It was a nightmare. The man desired to be well. But for 38 years, nothing happened. Now this 38 might um, seem insignificant to many of you, but to any Jew, that number 38 stuck out. And again, there is some reason that John mentioned this and that Jesus picked a man who for 38 years was hoping to be healed. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the scriptures read this. Remember, this is Moses' last sermon. And he's uh, just before the people are going to walk into the promised land, he's going over history. He's sharing what is absolutely the most important thing he can share. He is almost, again, going to see his God. So it's near the end of his life. And so he's going over some history. And he says this, 38 years passed from the time we first left Kadesh Barnea until we finally crossed the Zerid Brook. By then, all the men old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness, as God had vowed it would happen. The Lord struck them down until they had all been eliminated from the community. Now, some of you understand what happened at Kadesh Barnea. But if you don't understand at all that story, my guess is this. You need to go back in Numbers and read. This is a most significant story in understanding the whole of the Bible. So many of you know, and if, and if you go, and I'm going to give you just a, a quick, brief overlook here. But in Numbers chapter 10, the children of Israel just leave Mount Sinai. Remember their history. They were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. And Moses led them out and walked through the Red Sea. And they finally ended up in Mount Sinai where God gave them the, the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And the scriptures say, and there's a lot that happened in that area or in that time frame, but the scriptures say they stayed there for about a year. Now, after a year of camping around Mount Sinai, they went, well, the children of Israel went wherever God sent them. And the cloud began moving, and so they started to leave, headed for the promised land. Remember the promised land with this land that was filled with milk and honey. It was a land that they couldn't even believe. It was going to be huge crops and, and homes that they didn't build and cities that they wouldn't have to. It was just going to be a glorious time for them. And so they started to go toward that promised land. Well, 
it didn't take long, and you can read in Numbers 10 and 11 and 12. It didn't take long, but the children of Israel started complaining. Do you believe it? They started complaining, the scriptures say, because it was hard. We had a walk in the sand, the sun was hot. I mean, come on, Moses, let's get to the place. We're a little bit tired. You know, you've been talking about the promised land, let's get there. The scriptures also say they complained about manna. Well, manna was their food, and God provided it for them. And I would imagine after a year of manna, (laughs) or uh, manna every day, um, maybe would have got a little bit old. But they complained about that. They complained even about Moses' leadership. They didn't like his wife. Imagine that, you know? Like they were just starting to complain and complain and complain and complain. Well, Moses, with great integrity, finally led them to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And honestly, Numbers 13 and 14 will break your hearts. If you haven't read it, please do that. But it will break your hearts. Because it's the story when Joshua gets all of the tribes together. And he says, I'm going to send some spies, 12 spies, into the land. And they're going to scout out which way we should go and how we should do it and how to deal with this people. And the spies were gone for 40 days and they come back with fruit that is, it's unbelievable. And the stories. And so, excuse me, Joshua asked him, he says, hey, tell us about the land. Tell us about the land. And they tell all about the land. And, And they said, you know what? God is absolutely right. This is an unbelievable place. This is so cool. But it is one of the biggest buts in the Bible. But the land is filled with giants. And the land has walled cities. And you know what? We're never going to occupy the land. But two, two. And every family has a Joshua and a Caleb in it because of it. Two unbelievable leaders, Joshua and Caleb. I'm sorry, Moses was given all these instructions. Um, But Joshua and Caleb come back and say, hey, Moses, it's unbelievable. Let's do this together. Let's go over there. Let's claim this land. Our God is amazing to give us all this beautiful stuff. But the other 10 said, we're crazy. We can't do it. And so the scriptures tell us that, well, the people listened to the 10. And God in his anger says, you know, as a result of this, you are going to continue to wander in the wilderness. You will never experience the promised land at least right now. All those who are 20 and above, you will all die. And the only people that will experience this abundant life, this blessing that I want to give you, are those who are your kids. Do you see how horrific 
that was to not listen to God? He wanted to give them abundance. And the people said, no, there's giants in walled cities. We can't do that. And God says, no, 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 you can. And about 40 years later, he did. Whoa, the Jews were cursed to wander because of their lack of faith. Existence was hardly a life. You see, this is a perfect picture of man's condition. Hopeless. Sitting there for 38 years, existing. Not moving like we were meant to move. Hoping, but being disappointed every single day. That was this man. And he knew it. His response, though, was unbelievable. When Jesus healed them, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but there was no gratitude at all. Now again, maybe John didn't record everything, but I got to believe if, if there was a guy doing a happy dance, John would have showed us or told us. 38 years of immobility. 38 years of poor hygiene. 38 years of existing. Jesus heals him. There is no gratitude. There is no worship. He doesn't fall on his face and worship the one who healed him. Even worse, it seems like he sided with the Jewish religious leaders. That was the man. Now let's look at the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, as we read in our scripture, they're harsh, they're judgmental, they're dogmatic. How is it possible that you couldn't rejoice in this man's healing? There was a lack of joy. There was all this casting and these eyeballs. You know, I'm going to call it, they were really legalistic. Now, sometimes the word, even today, is kind of tossed around, oh, you're so legalistic. Let me describe to you what actually legalism is, because these Pharisees really were chief, these religious leaders. Legalism celebrates human achievement above God's achievement. That's the bottom line. Legalists focus on all their accomplishments, not what God accomplished. It denies God's grace and presumes you can earn God's favor through deeds. I think legalism is an enemy of grace. Legalism is subtle and results in the lack of joy in life and service. It brings out critical and judgmental spirit and robs you of your freedom. Legalism oftentimes is based on lists. Maybe they're man-made, maybe they're even God-made, but, but you have this checklist and you go through it and the more checks you have on the list, the better Christian that you are. Except legalism produces pride or depression. 
Its goal is to give as much criticism as you can without receiving any criticism. But what makes legalism so attractive? Well, legalism, for the most part, is so attractive to people who are shiny. Now, maybe that word is unfamiliar to some of you. But shiny people are people that look really good on the outside. They do. They have their act together. Sometimes they're type A kind of personalities. And, and they, they just know how to get things done. And they have these checklists and, and they can apply all the things that they normally do at work or at home and apply it to Jesus stuff. And so they look really, really good on the outside. But the truth is, their insides are all messed up. They're living their lives in their own power making sure that they perform really well so that they have the accolades of men rather than the accolades of God. You see, I do believe that many of us want to grow in our spiritual lives. I do. And sometimes if we can make a checklist and then check our list, we can monitor our growth and notice hey, you know what? I did this and this and this. I must be pretty good. Yet relationships and growth can never be monitored or assessed by checklists. Can you imagine having a marriage like that? Now, I know actually some of you probably do, and that's kind of hard. But, you know, your wife leaves you a checklist. Not a honey-do list. That's kind of normal. All right? But... But this is how things you need to improve in. And if you do, you'll be a good husband. And your husband does the same thing. And maybe you don't even write the words. But we all know what it is. And so we begin to perform in order to get our spouse's accolades. When, when you really love your spouse, you can't do enough for him or her. You are serving them all the time. It is not about you, it's about them. And so the checklist, although, or the performance may almost look exactly the same, the motivation is completely different. And that's really what a relationship with God is. As you fall in love with God, as you spend time with God, your character changes. The way you treat people changes. The way you love people changes because of that relationship with God. Not because you want to look good. Not because you want to look shiny. Not because you want other people's approval. That's what a legalist does, and it strangles you. Let's look at Jesus. There's a few things that jump out at us about Jesus. First of all, he embraced holy days, the scriptures. In this case, again, we don't know exactly what holy day, but Jesus made the trip to Jerusalem. And Jewish men at this moment who were obedient to the scriptures needed to visit Jerusalem at least three times a year. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, 
was not above God's principles. And listen. In fact, he listened to the Father and went to hard places. You know, every one of us love ministry that just flows. Isn't that true? Don't you love having a sparky group where no one's out of line and they just listen and learn all their verses? Or let's go up to high school ministry. Oh, boy. And they're just, you know, they bounce into the church on a Sunday night. They look at you and say, I cannot wait until the message is given. Give me God's word. I just want to apply it to my life. If that were to happen, perhaps Amanda might die right there on the spot or any of the other high school leaders. But, you know, it's one of those things that as you look at, we love when people display fruit and when there's growth and when, you know, when there's forgiveness and when there's harmony. Oh, my word, this is wonderful. But you know what? Oftentimes God calls us to hard ministries. And he led Jesus to a man who was sick for 38 years. A man who no doubt stunk. A man who, well, probably was not that attractive. But he listened to his father and his word was powerful. He asked him a question, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but he asked him a question and then looked at him and with great power and authority he said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And it happened. It kind of blew us away a little bit. Where was the belief? Where was the faith? Why did you choose him? How come the guy 38 years? Weren't there a bunch of other people, Jesus? Why didn't you just hurt them all together and say, in the name of Jesus, I heal you all? That would have been a cool miracle. He didn't do that. And on top of that, he healed intentionally on the Sabbath. Oh, boy. The Sabbath. Didn't Jesus, like, isn't Jesus smart enough to know that when he does something on the Sabbath, there's going to be a bunch of people that just get riled up? I mean, come on. Jesus, you're smarter than this. But you know what Jesus was doing was continually changing paradigms all over. You see, the Sabbath was pivotal back when Moses received the Ten Commandments. And basically, the, the, the rule of Sabbath was, stop all work. I'd like to read it to you specifically in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. The longest of all of the commands. And this is what God says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to your Lord, or to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. 
That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Well, by the time Jesus was walking around on this planet, the religious leaders have developed an unbelievable book of rules and regulations of what the Sabbath should look like. It's called the Mishnah. It's the authoritative collection of oral traditions by the Jewish leaders. There were 39 specific categories, not restrictions, 39 categories of restrictions which actually spelled out what you could do on the Sabbath and what you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. God's principle was this, stop all work. Well, the rabbis and the Pharisees wanted to make sure, well, you know what? God's not that clear. We're going to help all of you people understand what this means. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but let me just say this. The biblical perspective of the Sabbath is unbelievable life-giving. God instituted the Sabbath as a gift. As a gift. It is to replenish, not to recover. It is something in our world, well, is kind of looked down upon. Although the Pharisees were way over the edge, my guess is today, because it's in the Older Testament, because, well, it doesn't fit our lifestyles, that the Sabbath principle is probably not practiced too well. Life's too busy. We have to get things done. But all God was trying to say, if you want to be able to enjoy life to the max, listen to me. One day out of seven ought to look different. You don't earn your normal living on this day. And I'm not exactly sure what the day should look like for each of you. But the Pharisees really wanted to make sure you knew what it looked like. That wasn't God's heart. God's heart was, I want you to be full. I want you to be nurtured. I want you to, to enjoy my blessings. And if you do everything seven days a week the same, my guess is you are not going to enjoy me the way I had hoped. Now, if we look at this, Christ's healing basically set the stage for hope, open hostility. He did. He healed to show mercy and to literally confront the superficial Jewish legalism. Pharisees were experts at substituting, substituting traditions for God's word. So Jesus literally quotes Isaiah in talking about them in Matthew 15. He says this about the Pharisees. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. 
You see, God's word is powerful and God's word is true. And if we choose to break God's word, well, it actually breaks us. But God, in his grace and his mercy, said, you people are going to be crazy busy all your life. I want to give you a gift. I want you to take one day and I want you to use it to bring honor to me, to, to do different. Now, healing in this case, which is weird, wasn't dependent on faith. It wasn't. Jesus chose who to heal. It was a gift to him. And again, it's hard not to think of the word gift because that's where so many of us go for our salvation. Ephesians verse, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. In our early morning prayer this morning with the worship team, one of the guys prayed, and he said something like this. He said, Father, I pray that we don't take our salvation for granted. And it hit me. Is that we forget sometimes what a gift that God has given us. I don't know why, if you are a son or daughter of God, God chose you or God chose me. I know this, that I am overwhelmed because he did. But you know what was extra cool is that Jesus, after all this miracle, goes and seeks out the lost and warns. Jesus was upset. This, is, this should kind of shout out to you. It seems a little odd. He healed the dude. The dude's a little confused. He comes back and Jesus literally finds him. And I think Jesus was upset because there was a lack of repentance and gratitude. Christ's message in particular seemed really harsh. But this is what Jesus was saying, and this is important for us to understand. If you, Mr. Man who I just healed after he's been sick for 38 years, if you persist, in unrepentive sin, you will suffer a fate far more than 38 years of a debilitating disease, namely hell. You know, I have a sense that there was a good possibility that 38 years ago, this man offended the Almighty God and he brought on this sickness. Say, so, wait a minute, Rick. You know, that God doesn't just kind of like strike people sick if they don't listen. Well, you know what? There actually is a teaching in the scripture on sin and sickness and judgment. Illness is not always a result of sin. It isn't. We see that in Job as you read through it. And we're going to find out one of my favorite passages in John is John chapter 9. And we're going to find out again that it, sickness isn't always a result of rebelling against God. 
But sickness or illness can be a result of sin. David wrote about this in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 38. But most of you are familiar when we have our communion time. There's a portion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in particular verse 30, where the apostle writes this, Some of you are sick, and even some have died because they have not repented of their sin. Now again, we don't like hearing that. But God honestly loves us like crazy and isn't out there just to make sure that we get zapped the instant we step over a line. That's not our God. But our God will do everything he can to draw you to himself. Because a life apart from God is a life that lacks vitality. It is not how we were wired. And God desires more than anything for that relationship. So really, running from God is never good. Sometimes there are natural consequences, and sometimes there are God consequences. And again, just a little bit of a blurb as we're almost finished, but You know, if you wonder how gracious God is and yet how God feels about sin, you probably should spend some time reading Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It is a God that just pours his heart out, desires deeply that we experience abundant living. And if we choose to go our own way, if we choose to do things Apart from God, we will suffer the consequences. Ultimately, this display of power shouted to everyone around, I am Messiah, the kingdom has arrived, I came to right wrongs. I came to show that someone who's been sick for 38 years, by the word of my mouth, they can be completely restored. Now as we wrap up, today, what did we learn about Jesus? And we've been doing this every single week. What stuck out about Jesus? Well, I think one of the things that hit me hard was Jesus just plain listened well. He was obedient. He was so connected to his father that he listened. His word is powerful. It's powerful in healing and with warnings. When we read God's word, it is something that changes us, transforms us. We need to listen. And actually, what stuck out this week to me is God cares about us whether we respond or not. Wow. But what do we learn from Jesus? What do we learn? God does judge sin, and God may judge sin physically. I don't think any one of us need to walk around fearful. It's like, oh, you know, if I just disobey this or I don't know that... You know what, God's not like that. So many people, again, is if you do a hospital call, you find out that someone has some debilitating disease, 
oftentimes as a pastor will say, Rick, is it because I've sinned? And I look at them, I say, well, actually, I'm not the right guy to ask. <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, I think you do need to ask God that, but my guess is if you're asking, it's probably not the reason. If you're so sensitive in your life, it's probably not the reason. I think what I learned from today is that legalism steals life and grace gives life. Legalism steals life and grace gives life. And lastly, God's word is reliable. When he says something, you can take it to the bank. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for teaching us for encouraging us, for convicting us. We thank you that you show us what's important to you. We thank you, dear God, that each and every time we open up your word, it guides us, it directs us, it strengthens us. Lord, I pray today that everyone who has heard from you that that we respond. I pray, dear God, that, that we'd be overwhelmed by your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would use this text as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.